Please return to that portion from God's Word which we read a little while ago, Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. And let's pray. Father, we do long that you will speak. We ask that you will prepare our minds, that you will ready our hearts, and that you will challenge our wills. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. One of my children's favorite books is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis. In fact, we're reading this very book with my middle daughter, Emily. It's a wonderful story about the adventures of four children in the magical kingdom of Narnia. Halfway through the story, we find the two girls, Susan and Lucy, getting ready to meet the lion, Aslan, who, of course, represents Christ. Two talking animals, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, prepare the children for the encounter. Is he a man? asks Lucy. Aslan a man? said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. Aslan is a lion. The lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, said Mrs. Beaver. And make no mistake, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And in our passage this morning, we find that Isaiah, the prophet, has a similar kind of experience. You see, Isaiah is about to meet the king. He's about to stand before the Lord of all glory. And he too is about to realize that God isn't safe. But he is good. The first of our three lessons is this. The holiness of God is awesome. The holiness of God is awesome. And it all begins in the temple. A place that would have been very familiar to Isaiah. He's there once again worshipping the Lord. However, on this occasion... Isaiah is suddenly transported in a vision from his familiar surroundings into the very presence of God. This is extraordinary. This is breathtaking. Isaiah has entered the throne room of heaven. He is standing in the presence of the Lord. The one true living God. 
the absolute monarch, unrivaled in power and authority, the sovereign one who does all that he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. This is the Lord seated on his heavenly throne, high and exalted, utterly resplendent, filling the whole heavenly temple with the mere hem of his robe. Then in verse 2 we find that above the Lord were seraphim, each with six wings, with two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. Now these strange six-winged creatures called seraphim are actually mighty angels whose purpose is to serve the Lord. Their name, seraphim, means something like burning ones, burning ones. So these Amazing heavenly creatures are virtually ablaze with the adoration of God. They are flaming with pure white hot worship as they circle and surround God's throne. But notice that not even these mighty, sinless creatures can bear to behold the blazing fullness of God's glory. No, they are overawed. They are overwhelmed by the sheer splendor of the Lord. And so they hide their faces and they cover their feet in a sign of great humility. And yet... Such is the beauty before them that they cannot help but pour forth their praise. And so they lift up their voices and they cry out to one another in rapturous praise and adoration. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. And they repeat this refrain again. And again, back and forth, over and over, filling the courts of heaven with their song of worship and wonder. In fact, we discover that when the Apostle John had his vision in Revelation, over 800 years later, the angels are still crying out to one another, Holy, holy, holy. Now we need to press the pause button for a moment to make sure we're clear. What does it actually mean for God to be holy? Yeah, it's one of those words that we use in Christian circles, and we all think we know what it means, but when pressed, we might struggle to come up with an accurate definition. Well, God's holiness means much more than that he is without sin. Though, of course, that is true. But God's holiness is much more profound than mere sinlessness, no, for God to be holy means that he is 
without equal. It means he is set apart. It means he is incomparable. God's holiness is what he is as God, which no one else is or ever will be. The writer Jim Packer says, Holiness is the very Godness of God. Everything about him that sets him apart from man. But did you notice here that God is not just holy? No, he is holy, holy, holy. Each word boosting the force of the previous one exponentially. You see, that's how the biblical writers emphasized and underlined equality. They they repeated the word. But notice, only once in the entire Old Testament does a writer use a word three times of God. And it is right here speaking of God's holiness. The great A.W. Tozer writes this. God's holiness stands apart. Unique. Unapproachable. Incomprehensible. And unattainable. The natural man, he says, is blind to it. Yes, he may fear God's power. And admire God's wisdom. But God's holiness, he cannot even imagine. But notice then that this thrice holy God is also filling the earth with his glory. And again, let's ask the difficult question, what exactly is God's glory? Well, put simply, God's glory is the public display of his private holiness. God's glory is the manifestation of his holiness. You see, the blazing beauty of God's holiness is such that it cannot be contained. It cannot be confined to the courts of heaven. So it radiates. It spreads outwards so that it touches every part of creation. Until one day, one amazing day, when God's glory will fully and finally fill the earth. And the whole world will be his sanctuary. Brothers and sisters, what a God is this? As one author writes, we serve a God whose sovereignty is absolute, whose holiness is terrifying, and whose glory is overwhelming. But the great tragedy today, friends, is that much of the professing church do not view God like this. Simply read the average Christian book. Sing the average Christian song. 
And dare I said, listen to the average Christian sermon online and you will probably not be struck with a sense of the infinite holiness and glory of God. No, God has been brought down to our level. The lion, if you like, has been tamed. Meaning that the God that is presented to us today often bears little or no resemblance to the God of Isaiah 6. No, he's shown to be safe and casual and cuddly. And now as a result, a great many of God's people feel comfortable but never convicted. At ease but Never in awe. Relaxed, but never reverential. With little or no understanding of the transcendent, majestic awesomeness of the holiness of Almighty God. Now then, brothers and sisters, the all-important question is this. How do you view God? Do you and I see him as he really is? Are we worshipping the God of Isaiah 6? Or a God we have fashioned in our minds? Has your heart been humbled by his holiness? Have you been gripped by his purity and perfection? Do you have that sense of the greatness and grandeur of his glory? Is there any fear of the Lord in us? Searching questions. Let us all then humbly plead afresh for grace to behold our God as he really is. To be blown away by the awesome holiness of God. So the holiness of God is awesome. Secondly, we find that the grace of God is scandalous. The grace of God is scandalous. So Isaiah is in the presence of God. And he's witnessing the the breathtaking worship of the Lord of glory. But now in verse 4, the drama continues to unfold and indeed intensify. For as he listens to this deafening song of the mighty seraphs, the entire foundations of the temple begin to shake and tremble and quiver. And then smoke begins to billow out. You see, this is a manifestation of God's tremendous, majestic holiness. And it is dreadful. It is fearful. For it is showing that our God is a consuming fire. And in an instant, Isaiah realizes that He cannot remain in the presence of this thrice holy God. Why? 
Because as God's holiness has been revealed, Isaiah's sinfulness has been exposed. The infinite holiness of God has revealed the sinfulness of Isaiah's sin. And Isaiah now knows judgment must fall. And so he cries out in verse 5, Woe is me! I am ruined! In other words, I am doomed! I am damned! I will be destroyed! Now the frightening thing is this, friends, that Isaiah's plight is not unique. It is, in fact, shared by all of us, indeed, all humanity. You see, we are all, apart from Christ, in exactly the same predicament as Isaiah. Just listen for a moment to the witness of Scripture. See how it strips away our self-righteousness and exposes our true, our terrible condition. By nature, you and I are lost. We are cut off from God. We are condemned by God. Under sentence of death, totally depraved, slaves to sin, blinded to the truth, deceived by the devil, children of wrath and lovers of darkness. We are morally evil, unclean and impure, continually perishing and destined to hell. This is the plight of man before God. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. You haven't placed your faith in Christ. My friend, do you see the utter folly of trying to fix all of this with some self-improvement? Can you see how absurd it is to try to put all this right by getting a little religion? Or by trying to raise your moral standards a bit? No, friends, our problem is so great, so vast, so insurmountable that only God himself can save us. And amazingly, that's exactly what God does for Isaiah. For in verse 6, we find one of the seraphs peeling away from the rest and diving straight for Isaiah. Can you imagine what Isaiah is thinking at this moment? He must have thought, this is it. But then he spots that this, this angel is bringing with him a burning coal with which he then touches Isaiah's lips. Seems very strange. But notice carefully where this glowing coal comes from. It comes out of the altar. And the altar in the Old Testament was 
the place of sacrifice. It was the place where offerings were burnt for the sins of the people. And that's so significant as we'll see. Next, the angel makes this incredible declaration. See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Now again, pause for a moment here. Consider the sheer scandal of such a statement. Remember, Isaiah is guilty. Isaiah is a sinful man. He knows it. And he's standing in the presence of this thrice holy God. How can this righteous God look at a guilty sinner and say, You are innocent. How can a God of complete perfection look at that which is completely corrupt and say, you are perfectly righteous? How in the world can that happen? Well, to get the answer, we've got to move beyond Isaiah chapter 6. We've got to travel across to Isaiah 53. You can turn with me there in your Bibles. Isaiah 53 and verses 5 and 6. Where we read, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Here, Isaiah brings before us someone who is able to save us. Someone who is able to make atonement for sin. Someone who will be our saviour by becoming our substitute. And who then is this saviour for sinners? It is God's own son, Jesus Christ. And where is the place of atonement? It is the cross of Calvary. For the cross is the ultimate altar. It is the ultimate place of sacrifice. And how has atonement been achieved? By Christ dying in our place. Taking our sin. Bearing God's wrath. And exhausting it forever. Perhaps you're here this morning and you can feel the weight of your sin. And you are burdened and broken by guilt and shame. And you look back over your life and, and you know you are not fit for the presence of God. Then hear this. 
You can have your sins forgiven. All of them. Past, present, and future. You can be made right with God. You can find salvation full and free. If you will go to the cross. If you will place all of your hope, all of your confidence upon Christ and his work for you. This is the greatest news you and I will ever hear. If you will trust in the sacrificial death and triumphant resurrection of Christ, God will declare loud and clear, your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Isn't that amazing? That is scandalous grace. Will you come to Christ? Will you trust in his sacrifice? Will you receive his so great salvation? Thirdly and finally, we come to the mission of God, which is radical. The mission of God is radical. Here we come to verse 8. And look what happens here. For the first time in the passage, God speaks. He hasn't spoken yet. He speaks now. No more angels. This is God himself. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Now it's interesting here that Isaiah's call is not actually a command in the first place. No, it comes in the form of a question. And the question is not even addressed to Isaiah specifically. Rather, it seems God is speaking to the whole heavenly council here. Isaiah, he simply overhears the conversation. But notice... So great is Isaiah's gratitude and joy at having been forgiven and permitted to live that he simply cannot restrain himself. As soon as God speaks, Isaiah answers. He is so overwhelmed by the magnitude of God's mercy and grace that he volunteers. Even before all of the specifics are known. He offers himself. He says, how about me? I'm here. I'm available. And God says, go. Now our problem here is that most of us are so familiar with this passage and this story that we've lost sight of how remarkable this is. That God is willing to use Isaiah. Remember, this is the God who is high and exalted, far above all. This is the Lord of all glory, the sovereign one seated on the throne of the universe. Yet, he is willing to use his puny people to accomplish his sovereign purposes. 
With perfect ease, he could have commanded a whole host of heavenly angels to go and carry out his mission, couldn't he? But no, God uses people like Isaiah. Says one of the commentators, God takes polluted people and makes them his prophets. He takes sinful people and makes them his spokesmen. He takes shattered people and makes them his servants. And that is grace indeed. Is it not? You see, here's the good news, friends. Our God, he's not looking for great intellectual brilliance. He's not looking for outstanding oratorical skill. He's not looking for literary genius. He's not looking for the movers and the shakers and the power brokers, those that the world considers to be the people of choice. No. What he's looking for is people who have confronted the glory of God, felt the sinfulness of their sin, and experienced the greatness of his grace. Isn't that what happened to Isaiah? He was confronted by the glory of God. I saw the Lord. Then he felt the awful sinfulness of his sin. Woe is me. And finally he delights in God's grace. Here I am. That's the progression. I saw the Lord. Woe is me. Here I am. It is an amazing transformation, isn't it? You see, my friends, when the realities of God's glory and grace land on you, the only appropriate response is, I will go. When we realize we have an incomprehensibly holy God, that we are a sinfully lost people, and yet have been given a scandalously merciful Savior, we have got to lay down our lives. We've got to say, please, Lord, use me. Use my life. Use my family. Use my church. Everything I have, everything I am, for the spread of your gospel here at home and even to the ends of the earth. We'll find ourselves saying like C.T. Studd, missionary to China, India and Africa, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. I wonder then, will you sign your life unreservedly over to Jesus Christ this morning? Will you say, Lord, take my comforts. Lord, take my career. Lord, take my security. Lord, take my boyfriend or my girlfriend. Take my business. Take my retirement. Take it all. I am available. I am ready. I am eager. Oh God, please send me. 
I want to go with this gospel. I love the words of that little chorus. Perhaps you know it. Lord, send me, here am I, send me. I want to be greatly used of thee. Across the street or across the sea, here am I. O Lord, send me. May that be our prayer for the joy of the nations and the glory of our great God. Amen. Let's pray. O Lord, forgive us. So often we approach you We think about you, we pray to you, we talk about you without any real sense of who you are. Grant us then the fear of the Lord. And Father, we ask that you would fill us with inexpressible joy at the greatness of the grace that we've been shown at the love you have lavished upon us. So much so that we will lay down our lives and go wherever you call us to tell others of our Lord and Saviour. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.